everybody, and welcome to another episode of React Roundup. This week on our panel, we have Thomas Alot. Hello! And Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Quick shout out about the book, Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Go check it out. It's on Amazon. I'll put a link in the show notes. We have a special guest this week, and that is Sean Grove. Sean, do you want to introduce yourself and say hello? Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I, I work at a company called OneGraph. I'm big into GraphQL, and these days work a lot with uh, ReasonML and, and Rust, beforehand a lot with ClojureScript and whatnot. So looking forward to talking to you all. Cool. Are you a React developer who builds large applications for your organization? With NX, you can build your apps in a monorepo alongside your backend code and share code between React and other frameworks. You'll also get advanced code generation and automatically configured tooling like Cypress, Jest, and Prettier to simplify your workload. You'll build higher quality apps, share more across teams, and focus less time on configuration. Visit nx.dev react to get Narwhal's free open source set of extensible dev tools. I think we had some conversations about GraphQL. We had you on JavaScript Jabber yesterday, though these will probably not come out in the same week because I think React Roundup's turnaround time is a lot shorter than JavaScript Jabber. So this one will come out first. Yes. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> Take that, JavaScript Jabber. <laughs> yeah. We talked a bit about uh, GraphQL tools and implementation and stuff like that yesterday. You want to just kind of give the 10,000-foot view of GraphQL, where it is, what it is, and then we can kind of dive in from there. It's a kind of new way of, of building APIs. So you have your kind of traditional REST APIs where um, you'll hit an endpoint and you'll get back a predefined set of data, right? You'll hit a slash users and you'll get a list of all the fields that they have. Or GitHub is a good example. They have an endpoint that you can hit with their API that will give you a nice JSON representation of a repository. That representation is huge. It has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of fields. And so if you just wanted one or two fields, it doesn't matter, you can get them all. So GraphQL is a slightly alternative way of looking at things, which is saying, well, instead of having all these different endpoints, what I want to do as a front-end developer who's building an application is say, listen, for this UI, I need to have these three fields about a user and these three fields about a repository. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just going to list that out, send that out over to one GraphQL server, and it's going to figure out how to get all that data and give it to me exactly in the way that I want. Yeah, so it's, it's a slightly uh, more product-focused and kind of front-end-focused way of uh, doing APIs. Yeah, I, I, I like that just in the sense that I've built REST APIs and it's like, okay, now we need this data. So you wind up changing an endpoint or creating a new endpoint or yeah, things I love like being, that. It's different. Being able to just fetch exactly what you need and with no overfetching, so you're not getting extra stuff. And then you have this dependency problem where you're accidentally using data that you didn't explicitly fetch. And then if the API changes, then everything magically breaks because you didn't know where you're dependent. It's, yeah, it can be yeah. a nightmare with typical APIs, but GraphQL just kind of partly was created to solve that problem. Yeah, one thing I like about it, I mean, we, we often talk about GraphQL from a front-end developer's point of view because it, it is really empowering in many ways. And it is more work, generally speaking, because there are fewer frameworks to do it on the back end. But it has lots of advantages, even for back end developers. What happens with back end developers, you know, uh, if you're building out a REST API, you actually don't know which fields your clients are using, right? Like you can't yeah. actually change anything. You don't know which ones you should be optimizing. And, and you can never remove fields. Whereas with GraphQL, you know exactly what people are actually looking at. And you know, you know, you can say, keep tags about like which clients have accessed which fields. And so if there, if there was ever a bug, for example, and maybe how you calculated one of the fields, you can actually reach out to the exact clients that have requested that field in the past and tell them that they need to update their code or, or maybe refetch the data. Whereas with REST, you don't know. So you actually have to just email everyone because you know, maybe <laughs> the, you know, everyone might have looked at it. Hey, folks, that, I broke the contract. <laughs> that's a huge point yeah, that I haven't really considered before because you know, I'm a front-end oriented person. I've always dealt with GraphQL from the point of view of the front-end. But that's a huge point of being able to, to know for sure who is depending on what parts of your API. And so it's easier to deprecate things. and so, Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, no, there's actually like, there's so much like really interesting stuff that you can do because of the introspectable nature of, of GraphQL, right? So the other thing with GraphQL kind of compared to REST is by definition, by virtue of construction, every GraphQL server is introspectable by a computer, which means, you know, 
you can have VS Code ask a GraphQL server and say, hey, what data do you have available? What, what objects do you have? What fields do they have? What types are they? Are they knowable fields? And then in addition to that, one thing that we've been working on that I, I think is, is pretty exciting for both kind of API providers and consumers is a little bit of a middleware. Because GraphQL will tell you, for example, that a user has a field called email, and that email is implemented as a non-nullable string. It'll always be there. The problem is, you know, the tooling doesn't know that. It doesn't know that it would be an email, right? Maybe as a human, you can guess. So whenever you are, for example, just mocking the API, it, it'll just generate a random string because that's all it knows it is. It just knows that it's a string. So it'll do hello world, which is not a valid email. So what we uh, have been playing around with is for GraphQL providers, whenever data comes through your production API, you should kind of look at the data inside of each field and pass that to a classifier. There's a machine you know, uh, an ML classifier that just says, hey, what does this look like to you? So you, don't, you shouldn't store the data or anything like that, but you just look at it and say, oh, this looks like an email, it looks like a first name, it looks like mm-hmm. a Chinese name, it looks like a zip code, it looks like a UID, whatever it is. And then what happens is you actually are building up a probabilistic model of what that field is. And so now a user can actually come to your API and without having signed up or anything like that, can start generating fake data, right? So they can actually start using it as though they had access to the real data and build an entire application on top of that that can generate, you know, very realistic, you know, the, the top thousand common first names, oh, wow. That's uh, last huge. names, emails. And then they know that as soon as they sign up for this, as soon as they actually flip the switch and go to production, that it is going to work. And not only that, but you know, one of the biggest challenges with, I think, designing and working on the front end is you have access to relatively limited data, right? It's, it's hard to know all of the edge cases. How often have you seen a, you know, a first name, last name input that went too long because no one realized that names could go that long, right? Like a hyphen, several hyphenated surnames. And with this approach, what you can do is design your application and then say, all right, this looks good, but now what I want you to do is fuzz my UI, right? Now generate, show me what this looks like with the top thousand English names. Now show me Chinese. Now show me right to left. And just kind of break my UI. Show me what is going to break in production that I haven't thought about. So there are all sorts of like really interesting things that fall out of the introspectable nature of GraphQL. I don't know if that was 10,000 foot view or uh, (laughs) like deep in the weeds, but that's that's, that's, uh, something I get excited about. Yeah, we landed fast. (laughs) <laughs> One of the things that I I love so much about GraphQL is that they thought through the entire like developer experience as a core part of the API. That that's kind of like the developer experience was the the goal as well as like the the maintenance and the long term dependency issue of being able to you know deprecate fields and whatever. Yeah, I agree. It's it's uh it's definitely. You can tell whenever a spec like something like GraphQL is kind of born out of real-world pains and then very thoughtful application, like tasteful application of, of different principles. So I, I think that even you know Facebook, they weren't expecting for it to end up this nice. It was just through you know a trial by fire, right? Mm-hmm. Where they, they had to make this thing production ready. They had thousands of engineers that they needed to make productive. They needed to be able to scale it out and, and deal with, you know, old versions of mobile clients uh, and never break them and so on and so forth. Yeah, and, and so we, we kind of get to benefit from all of those problems at scale, even if we're not necessarily working at that scale. Yeah, I was there when they were first talking about it and got to use like the, the very earliest alphas of it to kind of build an internal tool while they were developing it. And it went through a number of iterations before it got opened up to the public. And uh, like syntax differences and, and even things of like the, the whole way you, that you mix in fragments and stuff came later on. And that was huge, which opened up the possibility of doing Relay, which was called D-Lite originally. Anyway, it still feels like GraphQL is super new, but it's actually been around since, I don't even know how long, since 2013, 2014? Yeah, I, I think in you know technology terms, that's like a, just a blink of an eye. But at the, <laughs> yeah. at the same time, I think from a business point of view, you know, it takes a long time for markets to be able to make a shift from, for an entirely new way of, of doing things and for there to be a big enough market to support multiple companies and whatnot. So I think that 
it's just getting to the point where there's enough kind of widespread knowledge and experience and demand for GraphQL now that it can actually support uh, numerous GraphQL companies. That's true. I, I tend to get impatient and be like, oh, why isn't everybody using hooks yesterday? It's only been a year. <laughs> Give them a break. Yeah, well, and it's it's interesting too because people who are writing newer code in newer code bases is like, yeah, they're using hooks now. But you've got a whole bunch of people with legacy code bases. You yeah. Know, it, be that, you know, I, I've heard different definitions of legacy code bases, but they've got older code bases that are written using the older stack and moving everything to hooks isn't really feasible. So the new stuff might be... Yeah, the definition of legacy that I heard is uh, any code that I did not write in the last half hour. So if it was ever written by anyone else, legacy. (laughs) If it was written by me yesterday, legacy. Yeah. Well, and, and I think that's fair to a certain degree just in the sense that I don't have the full context of this code in my head. And so therefore it's legacy code, right? And so it doesn't well, mean it's bad code when sometimes we conflate the two, but it is legacy code because I have to go do the work to figure out what's going on. Yeah. My concern with code is often, you know, my ability to understand it, right? Like, like you said, and in particular to reason about it both locally and globally. So I think Facebook has a really impressive code mod culture where they're able to yes. you know, uh, it, iterate on patterns with React or GraphQL. And it turns out that there are several thousand components that are using this old way of doing things. And so they will write a code mod that will walk through the code base and change things. And then they'll have a way of, of hopefully making sure that that doesn't break everything fundamentally. JavaScript is such an opaque language for most tooling, right? It's really hard to analyze from the outside. It's really hard to uh, change it in a programmatic way and be confident that you haven't actually destroyed it without testing, you know, without extensive tests everywhere. And I think the more that we can do to make it more machine readable and JavaScript itself being introspectable, uh, the better we'll be. Yeah, that, the tooling they use is called a JS Code Shift, if, I'm, if I remember correctly. And it, um, it like breaks down all the, the code into an abstract, abstract syntax tree, and then it does manipulations on the, the AST, and then rebuilds the code so you can build code mods that work at a at a conceptual level instead of like using regular expressions or whatever that you know i tend to do when i'm slack yeah there's actually a tool called combi that i I came across because i was watching a talk about this individual who wrote um, a code mod it was just a heroic effort. There was so much work to write uh, an effective code mod that would cover all the different you know, AST permuta- permutations and whatnot. And the, the challenge there is it's such a barrier to entry that we end up doing things manually that we could actually automate and, and work mm-hmm. at. You know, we, we could be much happier as developers. We're, we're doing a lot of manual work that I think the computer could help us with. And Combi is this really interesting... There's some like fantastic research behind it, but it, it's one of these rare cases where academic research turned into a really usable tool. And it does this kind of parser, parser, combinator approach. Interesting. And you can specify kind of structural regexes almost and capture them. And it has some differences, Ooh. but it allows you to express the, the structure in a way that just looks like JavaScript or Go or, you know. Awesome. This is exactly whatever. what I was looking for. Yeah, it's, it's really impressive. In particular, using it with um, something like TypeScript or Reason, it's really powerful because that will allow you to change all of the structure. So for example, you find all those cases of class-based components, and then you see, all right, well, here are the patterns that could turn it into a hook-based component. Mm. And then you run it all the way through your, your code base, and then you have the type system to actually double-check and make sure that you haven't broken anything from there. And so it allows you to take that legacy code and say, well, really, I don't know what was going on here, but this is a much easier way to think about things and to restructure it at scale. Oh, yeah. I'm going to have to dedicate a few days to checking this out. Yeah. I was trying to build something like this, but it is not, it is non trivial. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I literally started, so after the talk, I was thinking, oh, man, that there should be something like this. And I literally started working on something that was kind of JavaScript syntaxy. And uh, this popped up the next day. And I was like, oh, man, this, this is amazing. This is like, Way better than anything I would have done, and someone else did it. It's great. I can't, can't ask for more. <laughs> yeah, that's the ideal. <laughs> so uh, you sent this link over. So how OneGraph onboards users who are new to GraphQL, 
And there are a lot of really interesting topics to, to cover here. But the, like the thing that jumped out and smacked me in the face was the, you've got this, uh, it looks like a, a different version of the graphical explorer. So for those who don't know, uh, what is the, the regular graph, graphical explorer? And what is the difference between this one? And why is it so awesome? Yeah, sure. So Graphical is this really nice open source tool that can point at any GraphQL server. And it gives you kind of like an IDE experience where you can auto-complete your, your query and run it and then see the results in line. And so it's a, it's a really nice way of uh, experimenting with a, a server and building up the exact data structure that you need. But one of the challenges that we found is, again, you know, GraphQL is, in industry terms, relatively young. And you know, people oftentimes forget the bubbles that they, they maybe live in. You know, if they're excited about GraphQL, they assume that everyone knows about GraphQL. And we have a lot of people who sign up for OneGraph who, you know, because it's really easy to get your data out of Salesforce or QuickBooks or, or whatever it might be. And they don't necessarily know anything about GraphQL. In fact, most of them for a period of time thought that GraphQL was our own proprietary language. Oh, and wow. so there was a, there's a lot of customer education uh, that has to happen. And so the other problem there is that anyone who has learned GraphQL is almost by definition incapable of teaching it. It's like, uh, you, know, <laughs> you, you look at it and you're like, oh, this thing makes no sense. And then something clicks and you're like, oh, this is the best thing in the world. Yes. And now you can no longer explain to the person who doesn't get it why it's actually good. <laughs> yes, I know that feeling. We were trying to communicate this to the, the community at large and you know, thinking that there must be different ways that we could onboard users uh, into just GraphQL in general, not just one graph. And so GraphQL has this introspectable nature where you can ask any server and say, hey, what you know, data types do you have available and what are the fields and whatnot, like we talked about earlier. And you just get this JSON blob back. And with that JSON blob, like everyone knows how to use JSON, and you can build really nice tools on top of that JSON. Mm -hmm. And so what we did was build kind of an alternative to the normal graphical experience. It just fits in alongside it, but it doesn't require that you know syntax, the GraphQL syntax, before you start benefiting from it, right? It, it, in kind of a human way, it just it's almost like a, a file explorer, where it just lists out, hey, here are all the nodes that I have, so users and accounts and posts, and whenever you click on one, it'll expand it and show you all the fields that are part of a user or a post or account. And at the same time, it'll actually build up that GraphQL query to the right. And so what's nice is you can express your intent and you can say, hey, I know that I want some data about my users and I want these three fields. And it builds up the corresponding query and you kind of build up this muscle memory that tells you, oh, this is how you build a GraphQL query. This is how you use uh, yeah. arguments. And we initially meant for it to be a way to onboard users, but I find uh, it's, it's generally how I write almost all of my queries now. Because even as an experienced user, I, I, we added some features for power users. But even for, for power users, it's just uh, it's, it's much faster to build up you know, queries and, and mutations and whatnot. Yeah. So for those who, you know, who can't see my screen at the moment, the normal uh, graphical, so it's G-R-A-P-H-I-Q-U-L, pronounced graphical, which is super confusing in audio form because it's a graphical GraphQL. It's, it's, a, it's an adorable pun. But on the left, you've got like a, a text editor where you can like write your GraphQL code. It's got autocomplete and all this really nice stuff. And on the right, you've got the, the actual data that's returned. But the problem with that is that you have to know what the data structure is. You have to, you know, it's got autocomplete, so you can kind of dive into it, but it's it's super tedious. But the difference with the one graph thing, it takes that and then adds a thing on the left that just like shows you everything. You can just click a checkbox to add that and it edits your GraphQL code to include all that syntax. So you can both write your query and explore the data structure simultaneously. I'm absolutely in love. I got to get this. I want to keep doing it the hard way. So <laughs> sure. <laughs> you waste uh, your day. I'm going to do it fast. So one thing that a lot of people who are, I think, new to GraphQL often want is a kind of a, you know, you're, you're in users and it has lots and lots of fields and you want to have a, like a star which says, give me all of them. And this, you lose a lot of the benefits of GraphQL by doing that. But with the Explorer, we added a, a little secret. So if, for any of the listeners who want it, you can hold on Option or Alt and click on an object and it will select all of the subfields. 
So it's it's not meant to be nice. easily discoverable at all. It's a, you know it's a power user feature. You should be no. Like, it should feel painful if you're selecting lots and lots of fields <laughs> because it tells you you're doing something wrong. But if you know what you're doing and and you want to do something wrong, then that's a little tip for uh, the graphical explorer. Oh, I like that. I like the secret pro tips. <laughs> Yeah, but I think the, the tooling, I mean, the introspectable nature of GraphQL makes it so that you can build all sorts of really powerful tooling. So one is this Explorer. Another one is um, code generation. So we also analyze the, we have another extension for GraphQL that it'll look at the operations that you have. So the queries and the mutations and subscriptions, and it will actually generate a, a full React app based off of that or a Bash oh. app. So if you, you know, with one graph, you know, you can get... You can query into Spotify, and you can control your player with GraphQL. And so you, you build that up with the Explorer. You get a couple of different operations of play, pause, next, search. And then you open up the code exporter, and you select Bash. And now you have a little Bash utility that will actually control your Spotify player, which is, you know, I think all the listeners are madly excited about Bash programs. I mean, that's that's obviously what we should talk about, I think, on oh, yeah. the next roundup, right? <laughs> Yeah, everybody on React Roundup loves Bash. So, yeah, but it, hey, but it's one of those Bash. <laughs> <laughs> but it is one of the things that it's it's really cool because we can actually use that code generation to do a number of really powerful things for new users as well. One example of that is a lot of users don't know that you can name operations and that there are benefits to naming operations. In particular, wait, what are operations? Uh, so GraphQL has um, three kinds of operations. You have queries, which are, you know, it's basically a pure function where you're only reading data. Uh, you have mutations, which is where you actually write data or you do some effects like pause a player or that kind of thing. And then you have subscriptions. And you can have one GraphQL document that might have several operations. You know, you might have one that, a query called search that will search inside of Spotify and return a, some number of songs. And another one alongside it that's a mutation that's going to pause the player and another mutation that's going to resume it. And then inside of that one document, you can send it to the server as one whole document and then say, hey, I actually just want you to run the search or I want you to run the pause player in, in this case. And you can give them names. And one of the benefits of that is on the client side, if you're building a React application that has a named query, for example, and you've given a unique name, and you're running it and you're running it, you can actually track its performance really easily over time, right? You can say, hey, it turns out that the initial find user query, it used to run, you know, in 100 milliseconds, and now it seems to be taking 500 milliseconds. Like, what, what, what has changed nice. about that? So, but in the code generator, what we want to do is we don't want to stop you. We don't want to, like, force you to actually name that. So what we do is we analyze the AST, and if we see that the, the name is missing, then inside of the code we generate that you're going to copy and paste, we're going to go ahead and call it unnamed query and give you a comment that says, hey, maybe you should name this. Uh, this is what it looks like. These are the benefits. And so we can kind of gently guide you. At no, no point do we stop you, right? But we can make it so that you can gently learn all of the best practices just by kind of copying and pasting code. And I think, yeah, for like API providers, that's like a huge deal because graphical is, is really nice. But it itself is not a very useful context, right? Like the whole reason you're in graphical is to see some, you know, build up some queries to make sure the data is going to be right so that you can get back to your app. So you can get back to building your UI. And so there is a big gap going from, you know, graphical and saying, oh, this looks like the right query to, okay, how do I actually use this now? For a lot of our users, you know, before we built that and, and open source it, <laughs> they said, okay, this, this is great. Again, I got all this data out of um, you know, NPM or GitHub. How do I use this in my app? And I was like, well, go learn Apollo and React and, whatnot, <laughs> and come back in several weeks. And, and, uh, <laughs> and you know, it was not, not thrilling. And what, what happens in particular, I think it's really important for API providers to realize that like, if I see your API and I'm trying to get in my code, I am going to cobble together whatever I can do. I'm desperate to find some success here. I'm going to just cobble together whatever I can to make a, a single successful call. And I'm going to start tweaking on that thing, just iterating on it once I have a little bit of success. And I will probably make a number of mistakes. And what I'm going to do is leave a, a comment that, hey, come back here and refactor this later. But if I don't get there in time, the next time I have to do this, or more likely the next time a team member has to use this API in some way, they're going to copy and paste that working example that I have 
And that's going to start mutating and spreading throughout the code base. And so what you want to do is you want to, as an API provider, say, look, we are the experts in how to use our API. These are the best practices. So what we can do is analyze the data that you want to get out and then generate you a component that has the best practices embedded. And so now the easy thing, which is copying and pasting it and then tweaking that, is actually the best thing. You're actually doing the best thing. Yeah, so that's 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 just kind of how, how we tend to think about it. Yeah, teaching best practices by example, kind of in a natural way, injecting them into common workflows. I've seen that be such a powerful way to onboard things, kind of teaching people by example instead of, okay, here's regular life. And then it's a completely different universe where you learn new things. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm starting to toy around with the one graph, graph graphQL thing here. So it looks like you've got just like gobs of data that you can just grab. (laughs) What's going on with all this data? So like, okay, I want to build a a React app. There's data in the universe. I want to get it via GraphQL, but I don't want to have 70 different GraphQL servers that I'm talking to. And your thing does something with that. What's going on? Yeah, so the idea behind... One graph is it's a, it's a single GraphQL endpoint through which you can get all of your data from Stripe and Salesforce and QuickBooks and uh, both good APIs and some some not so pleasant APIs. And by wrapping the unpleasant APIs inside of our GraphQL, then you get all this nice tooling that we've been talking about, right? The explorability and the, the code gen and whatnot. And it also comes from this um, this supposition that the data that we actually pull from you know, all these different sources, is a graph. It's just not recognized as such. And what happens is, every time you query into, say, for example, Salesforce or um, GitHub, and you pull out you know, a, an account, and there is a Zendesk ticket ID, anything in, the, in like underscore ID is you know, some sort of foreign key. Mm-hmm. What happens is, as a programmer, you make an API call, you get that data, you pluck off that key manually, and then you make another API call into the other API, so Zendesk or whatever. And that's you manually traversing the graph as a programmer. And the computer can't help you at all, right? Because as far as it knows, like it, there's no relationships embodied inside of these, especially across services. And so by recognizing that actually each of us has one graph, the graph is different for all of us, but we actually have one graph of the world's data that you know we, uh, we, we look at. It. So being able to say, all right, well, this is how I see the world. This is how I actually want to express my relationships. And I can express the data I want. And I don't care how you actually get it from these servers. Just go and do it, right? Like, I don't know why I, as a programmer, am thinking about you know the actual nuts and bolts of how to make these API calls and how to authenticate and, and that kind of thing. You figure that out for me. And not only that, but once you have something like that, you can actually start to be incredibly powerful. Salesforce is, I think, uh, an interesting example here because they have five different classes of API. Not, not different APIs, like API endpoints. They have five different classes, each with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of methods that are totally different styles. Some are uh, like SOAP, some are REST, some are uh, event-based. Did you say SOAP? SOAP, yes. <laughs> oh, I haven't heard that name in a while. I'm sorry. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's okay. I don't, I don't think we need to explain what that is. It's fine. We can let soap rest. Yeah. <laughs> hey! Yeah. yeah, there we go. Yeah. But uh, so what, what happens is, you know, Salesforce is, is not typically a, a really fun API to work with. And so as a, you know, especially as a front-end developer, you're thinking, all right, I've been assigned to pull some data out and build a little, you know, widget or dashboard for marketing or, or whatever. And so you're going to look at their different APIs. If you're a human being, you're probably going to go and use their REST API, uh, which is, you know, it's, it's resource-oriented, it's uh, JSON, and it's synchronous. So you're going to go ahead and build out your, your application, and it's going to look good. And then you're going to ship it, and it's going to be used by two or three people. And you're going to find out that Salesforce actually has an API limit of 10,000 calls per day. And if you want to double that, it's uh, $25,000 per year. And it, and it turns out that it takes a lot of a- API calls to get data out of REST. It's not meant for large-scale usage. But they don't worry. They have another API called the, the bulk API and the batch API. And the bulk API is actually it's driven by their custom SQL dialect called Sokol. 
so Salesforce object query language. No, and you can get, I'm, all just, you know, I'm already just like unsubscribe. <laughs> it's, it's at least synchronous now. It used to be asynchronous and it used to be XML. So it's, it's a little bit better now, but you, you, you can imagine <laughs> that as a developer, you've, this? you've built up your UI and you've hit this limit. And now they're like, well, go use this other API instead. And that, that, that API is entirely different, right? You are coupled to the REST implementation. Whereas with us, what happens is with a GraphQL implementation, you can see that, hey, you're about to make a thousand calls to get a list of all of your customers or all of your accounts or whatever it might be. And if you can wait an additional you know, uh, 800 milliseconds, what we'll do is actually analyze this AST, compile into a SQL thing and make one object call, one API call instead of 800 or 1,000, and then give you back that data exactly as you want it. And you don't actually care what the underlying mechanism, you just say, hey, here are my requirements. You figure out how to execute it in an optimized way. Another one here is rate limits. I'm going to go on a rant. Uh, rate, limits <laughs> need to, like, rate limits need to go away. Rate limits are, are one of the most challenging problems in API to, as a consumer because they are incredibly non-local. If you are using the Gmail API, for example, you know, maybe you're building a dashboard and internal tool or something for your company, and it needs to pull out some uh, list of messages or with some labels or whatever. Every time you make an API call, you need to check the response and you need to see, you know, was it success? Was it an error? If it was an error, was it, you know, I wasn't authenticated. But if it's a rate limit, it's really difficult because now what you have to do is back off, right? You have to kind of wait. And this becomes this, uh, you know, maybe it's a, in, in particular in JavaScript, it's a, it's a challenging thing, right? Where you need to kind of asynchronously wait. Maybe you do a set interval or set timeout or something like that, or something more sophisticated. But not only do you have to back off here, but there might be other clients who are also hitting that API that have different priorities. You now have like a quality of service problem. Maybe you are a tool that's running in the back end, but there are also clients who are hitting it live that need to see that data right now, and you could afford to wait more than they can. And so you have this incredibly non-local problem that you have to reason about with rate limits. And again, the computer can't help you because of the way that you know, rate limits are effectively opaque. Everyone does them in a snowflake way. And what I like <laughs> about being able to you know, express your data requirements is you can then separately specify you know, the urgency of them. And so, for example, with uh, Twitter, Twitter has just insane API limits, right? Like they, they don't want anyone to really use their API. I think recently they banned, you know, personal usage of it even, uh, which is... What? Um, well, they, they, you can't create new apps meant for personal use. They won't be uh, approved, apparently. Uh, right. <laughs> but even with, if, if you have one, a legacy one, their API rate limits is like 100 calls in a minute or something. And, and then you have to wait 15 minutes for it to come back. And yeah, they, they do not want us using this. <laughs> yeah, right. And if you're building like a, a tool, like, you know, maybe you want to have a, a little tool to manage your uh, direct messages right? so, uh, for the company or for, for whatever. A little reminder to tell you, hey, this person messaged you a couple days ago and you haven't responded. What you can say is, look, here's the exact data I need, right? I'm going to go into Twitter. I'm going to go into my direct messages. Uh, I want to get these fields. And I actually don't need it right now. What I just need is for you to download all of it Never let my remaining API limits go under you know, 50 for the hour because I still have some other tools that are using this. And whenever you're done, just deliver a big blob over here. right? Just deliver the result over here where I can uh, work on it without any sort of rate limits. And so you can kind of express your requirements about how to execute it and fetch this data in a way that is separate from the, the actual data that you want. And then you can just say, like, now I know that this thing will execute in a way that will never affect any of my users, It'll never affect the, the liveness. And I don't have to reason about like, oh, did I hit the rate limit? Because you know, the GraphQL execution query engine can figure that out. Like you can push a lot of this stuff down into the system to where the computer can help you much more. Yeah, those are all hard problems that me building software, just user interfaces, I don't want to have to care about. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah please, no. Yeah, exactly. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, 
if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. I think Facebook had a really good approach here where, you know, they a long time ago, they had uh, severe privacy issues. And I, I haven't heard anything about that. <laughs> yes, yes. Right. <laughs> you know, at the time it was interpreted as from, you know, externally that, hey, uh, you know, the Facebook developers just don't care about privacy. And actually what, what was happening was they had to consider privacy every step along the way, every time they were building any part of the UI and, and fetching any bit of data. And it made it really difficult because they had to worry about several different concerns in addition to building the UI and building the experience. And so I think Salesforce did a really good job by saying, all right, we have to push this down into the system. We have to make it so that the system are, like, does this orthogonally, separate from a programmer. So now as a programmer, I know that the backend or the API is going to handle this for me. And I can just work, focus on building this one part of the, the experience. And I, I think that that same idea needs to be uh, applied to lots of different parts of the, the UI building experience. I mean, yes. we, there are so many things that we focus on on the front end that are entirely separate from actually building a really good user experience. And it, it, it makes me deeply sad whenever I'm, I'm doing it because I'm, <laughs> I'm working on this thing and I feel like I'm, I'm looking off to, you know, in the imaginary distance and I see the thing I actually want to be working on, but I think, oh, I gotta, I have to eat my vegetables first. I have to do this part first. Uh, <laughs> yeah. In defense of um, uh, Facebook for a second, like uh, one of the, like the core architectural pieces of how the Facebook data systems work is that privacy is baked so deeply into the system that it's impossible to, to fetch any data without going through a privacy check first. So, that's why in GraphQL, every, every single field is nullable because there could be some kind of privacy thing blocking you. Like maybe the user that you're trying to fetch data for has blocked the current user or something and suddenly doesn't have access to this data or who knows. Oh, privacy is so complicated that you know, it's, it's, it's boiled, it, it is baked it like into the metal of the system. So yeah, null could that's... be denied instead of not specified. Is it just comes saying? back as null because you're not allowed to know yeah. <laughs> if that data even exists. Yeah, and I think that that's, that's such a better way of doing it, right? I think of how like the developer's happiness before that decision and after that decision, right? Like that, that's an entirely different experience yeah. of building application. Yeah, you do not want to have to think about, am, am I risking my job by running this API <laughs> query? Like, no, <laughs> you're safe. You can't accidentally fetch user data you shouldn't access. If you push these concerns down to the system, then you can start to build really useful tooling and like developer experience that, that's difficult to match. So for example, the, the Graphic Explorer that we were talking about beforehand, we actually have a version of that that we built for Excel. So Ooh. it's another one that I'm sure that you, you guys talk about all the time is Microsoft Excel. You uh, know so it. <laughs> yeah, heck yeah. But uh, <laughs> the reason we did that is because, you know, like I, I'm not an Excel expert at all. But I see people who are not necessarily programmers, but or they're programmers, but they don't know it, right? Excel is like by far the largest programming platform in the world. It has something like 650 million users. And they can make magic happen once they get data in there. Mm-hmm. But it's, they are never going to be able to express the you know, API mechanisms of like making a fetch or you know, get versus a post and handling rate limits and privacy yeah. issues and all this kind of thing. But if you can build this little UI so they can just kind of click through and you can point it at any you know, GraphQL thing and suddenly you're building up a query and it's actually inserting all of the data right into the Excel where they that can work on it. would be hot. You can imagine if you're a developer and you have an internal GraphQL API and your manager comes to you and says, hey, listen, I need a list of all the users that signed up in the past two months so I can do a blah, 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 blah. And you send them that, you know, you make a little CSV, you go into the database and you, you do a dump and you send it. And they say, well, actually, I need these additional three fields. And can you add that? And can you sort it by this? And it's just like, um, you know, a, a designer with, you know, a product person saying, no, no, four pixels to the left, you know, a little bit down, <laughs> right. a little bit more pink. But except, you know, that's, that's us as, as developers now. Like, we're really imperfect translation tools. 
But if you can give them a thing where they say, here's the, they just click through and they say, you know, I want users and I want these three fields and execute it. And whenever it's done, just put it inside of my Excel sheet. Suddenly, like they can be much more independent and much, much happier. Yeah. I want that for me too. (laughs) Yeah. I, I started getting into the weeds of learning how to use all the like, the whatever it's called in Excel or um, Google Docs to fetch data over the wire and insert it into the table and stuff. And it's just like really cumbersome. If there was a thing to do that, but easy, sign me up. Yeah, one thing that I'm I'm kind of looking at here that's kind of interesting in the GraphQL space is just all the tooling. I mean, we were talking about the graphical, graphical, GraphQL thingy. But, you know, we've also got a bunch of backend systems, you know, one graph, Sounds like you kind of cobble a bunch of stuff together and make it GraphQLized. You've got Hasura, which you pointed a database, and I think they can also pull in other uh, APIs, if I remember correctly. You know, there are a bunch of tools, other tools on the back end and the front end. So, do you see this explosion of tools as some kind of indication that, I, I guess, indication of adoption? And what's your opinion on some of these tools? There are a couple of different layers there, but in particular, I think it's a sign of leverage, right? Where the GraphQL community is tiny by comparison to the REST community. You know, it's it's growing at a crazy rate if you look at the Google Trends, but it's still very small uh, in uh, like uh, absolute terms. What's different though is with REST, everyone had to build their own API tools. You couldn't actually share them because every API was unique and it did it in mm-hmm. their own way. And now what happens is because GraphQL is so introspectable and, and has these standards, it means that one you know, person can build a really useful tool and that can suddenly be applied to everyone. And then people can build on top of that. And so you have this kind of momentum that builds up faster and faster and faster. The Hasura project that you mentioned is just amazing. I think those guys are, are complete chumps. Like It's this open source Firebase on top of Postgres, which is just the most amazing database that gives you this real-time feed with just amazing technology. It's open source and free. Like I have no idea how that 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 makes sense, but I, like I'll take it. It's just cool. Wait, what is this and thing? Hasura is it's it's amazing. It's uh, a little open source server that you just point at any Postgres endpoint or any Postgres database, and it will give you a full GraphQL API with like real time live feeds. Wow! And you can apply all sorts of permissions, and it's basically like Firebase in a box, open source with GraphQL. And the thing is, like, that team is just amazing. Their technology is, is phenomenal. You know, it's written in Haskell. It's this tiny little super efficient binary that can be deployed anywhere. And the thing is, I want them focusing on that because that's work that I can't do. But if you look inside of their console, they give you this great, like, web interface to actually, it's like PG admin plus graphical and everything all together. They also have the graphical explorer, right? The, the one we've talked about beforehand where you can kind of click your way through. And they're adding the code gen open source tool that we, we added. And that's where like, you can really start to build up momentum because they can focus on the areas that they're really good at, but they can still leverage all this open source tooling that exists for, for GraphQL. And so I think even though the community is relatively small, the composable nature of all these different tools means that it can move at such a faster rate. And that's, I think, a leading indicator of adoption, right? So the different kind of developer experience and whatnot that we've talked about. It's a sign of adoption by the right people, but really much more of the the leverage that GraphQL gives you. That's partly why React is so popular also, is the composability, that anybody can write uh, some components, put them out there, and then you can bring them into your own world really Mm -hmm. easily, where things like jQuery and MooTools and whatever else, anytime you built a thing, it was building your own little universe, and you couldn't easily build composability or or shareability wasn't really a thing. Yeah, actually, I, I'm kind of shocked by how good the um, React ecosystem is. We're working on this tool. So we, we have this for our API partners. Uh, we have like a little gateway that will will wrap your API in GraphQL, and then we'll give all your developers all the tools that we're talking about beforehand, right? So like the Explorer and, and whatnot, and we'll analyze all of the, we'll do the probabilistic mocking and all that kind of stuff. But one of the additional things that we can do there is you can tag clients. And so what happens is you can say, you can kind of build up a query that says, I want to know of all the users who signed up in the past month, what are the top fields that they're actually accessing? Like what, what are their, the commonalities between them? What are they doing with my API? 
And our tooling doesn't know what it means semantically, but we can say, here's the commonality. Here is the most common query that people are running. And we can ask you as a, as a human to say, hey, what is this? Describe this example. And now that actually will automatically go into your documentation. And then your documentation can actually react to new things that happen, right? So whenever we see uh, that there's a change, we'll say, hey, we don't know what this means. It's a different, different thing. What is it? That then goes into your documentation and then is, is sorted and, um, you know, depending on what people are actually doing. So your documentation has actually become, you know, accurate and, and, and responsive. But what we also wanted to do was make it so you could easily edit it inside of that docs page. And so, you know, it, it renders Markdown and there's React Markdown. And I wanted to have like a little inline editor that I could like drag around and there's React draggable and a mobile nice. that, so it actually pushes uh, to GitHub from directly inside of the, the browser. It's, it's really cool. And there's you know, React modal and like all these things that back in 2014, 2013 were a lot of work to build. <laughs> it, it was yeah. literally just, I don't know, less than a minute to like yarn add it, and I was off to the races. It's such a better experience developing UIs now than it was, you know, five years ago, six years ago. I totally agree. And so it's so it's such a sea change. It's hard to even imagine what it was like back then. It's like back in my day, we didn't have common JS. You could, I mean, like <laughs> back in the day, the only choice you had is like to concatenate JavaScript files yourself or add extra script tags to the page. Like, so finally, okay, we solved being able to compose JavaScript files at all. <laughs> Twenty years after every other language in the world. And then it's like React took that concept, but but components though. And now with hooks, it's like but but uh, logic though. And then with uh, GraphQL, it's like but with data though. Yeah, and I actually think that the the combination of those two things is going to end up being more powerful than people realize. So one of the the tools I tried to build, I don't know, you know, everyone tries to build it. Uh, was a UI builder. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Because I I still feel like even with the React code I write. It's still very manual. You know, I'm writing JSX and I'm positioning things. And it's indirect, right? So I'm writing this code here and I have my application running over on the right. And I'm kind of working on it through a distance, through this code. When I kind of want to just grab this component and move it over here and, you know, start editing its, its properties and whatnot, kind of like interface builder. There was a company in 2008 called 280 North, which was a bunch of ex-Apple people. Yes, that and stuff was so future. It was absolutely mind-blowing, the UI building technology that they had. And you know, through accidents of history, they were um, acquired by Motorola as effectively a hedge against Google, because yeah. they were different companies at one point, and Google had Android. And then six months later, Google bought Android, or sorry, Google bought uh, Motorola, and you know, that's 280 North is gone now. Yeah. And it, it kind of breaks my heart that there was such a powerful tool that hasn't been recreated. And the challenge is you needed these superhero-like abilities to you know, make your own programming language, your own custom compiler, your own runtime, your own components, your own uh, UI builder. And now with React, a lot of that stuff goes away, right? Like you can just pull in what the community has. With GraphQL, you can actually express the data. So suddenly, I, I really think you can have UI builders where you drag in components and you say, uh, you click on you know, the, the title of something, and you say, well, this is going to be from, and it pops up the little graphical explorer we were saying, right? And it's like, you, know, you click on a user, and you say, first name. And that becomes the title. And people don't even know that they're using React or GraphQL. Like the, the people who are actually building the designs, they don't care, right? They're just expressing the functionality and the data dependency and whatnot. And behind the scenes, it will actually create a super optimized, you know, GraphQL query for that particular screen. It'll have all the best, you know, accessibility and everything um, kind of baked in. So I, I think that we're we're still early in the evolution, and we're going to see a lot of really impressive stuff happening. I totally agree. So the the latest news in that space is um, Framer is coming to the web. Framer is um, is a design tool that. Everything that you're doing visually is actually React under the hood. And they're almost like under the radar in what they're doing. Although it's, you know, public knowledge what they're doing. They're not really broadcasting it in the React ecosystem as much. They're focused more on the design community, but they're they're totally coming at us. I, I can totally see a a future in which the act of of hand coding basic stuff 
isn't a thing anymore in the same way that manually concatenating JavaScript files isn't a thing anymore. But that's 20 years out, I think. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's, it's not going to be tomorrow, but I, I think that there's going to be these cumulative you know, additions, right? That the tools are going to be nicer, we're going to move faster, which will enable us to build more tools faster. And, and we're just going to keep picking up steam right now. So I'm pretty excited. I mean, I don't know if you've had a chance to play with Swift UI. I know it's, it's kind of outside of the, the React world, but it's, it is a not fundamentally yet. different experience. It feels like molding an application rather than, than building it because you're writing your code on the left at the, and the app is running on the right and it's the real app and you can interact with it. And whenever you see something, you can kind of click through to the property. You, know, you, you say, oh, well, this color is kind of wrong. Where's that coming from? And it'll actually open up the code on the left-hand side and, and show you that, hey, this is where the color is. And because of the, the type information inside of Swift, you know, it knows that, hey, these four integers actually represent an RGBA value. And so whenever you click on it, it'll pop up an optional color picker. And so now you're, you're kind of moving it around and you see just in, in milliseconds it, your application changing on the right. And it feels like the Chrome DevTools taken all the way into the editor, but with integration also with the source code and, and being able to continually run it and whatnot. So rather than the separation of like, here's my editor and here's my application, it's, they're all together. That's one of those, those kind of tools I would really love to see for the React world. Yeah, that's why I was so obsessed with a React Native for so long. Because when I started into the, the native mobile universe back in like 2012-ish, just the, the turnaround time between, okay, I, make a, I hit save in my editor and I see those pixels changing on device or in a simulator, it was on the order of minutes. So that, you know, the iteration mm-hmm. speed is so disconnected that you can't, your brain can't switch into flow mode. It can't switch into play modes. You can't like interact. You can't be in a, an, in a discovery mode flow state, which is kind of the, the play circuit in mammals, yada, 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 psychology, mm-hmm. etc. But with web, the web has been so popular, I think, mostly because of reach, of course, you can, you know, just send a link to people. That's huge. But building really complex apps is just the turnaround time, the, the feedback cycle, the actual developer experience. Like I could, I could rant about this for a long time. This is my, my obsession. But things like Swift UI, this is clearly the future. And if the web does not keep up, like things like Swift UI are, are the competition to the web. Yeah, I agree. I wonder if that was always the case already. I feel like Firebug was kind of the, the turning point yes. in developer experience mm-hmm. and ability to iterate. And before that, I mean, developing web pages for Internet Explorer was not, was not a fun and, and quick, no. joyous experience. I did it, but it was not fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, is, it is a different world now. It is nice. Yeah, I, I, had, the, I had all this like TextMate stuff set up, so every time I hit save, it would like run an Apple script that would reach into my my virtual machine and just hit F5 on my, <laughs> IE, my IE 5.5 simulator. I was like, oh, it was a nightmare. Oh, but time. man, I had it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Firebug was, was a game changer. I remember when somebody showed me that at first. It was like my mind exploded. Yep, it was. It was a game changer. I can't think of a better way to put it. Yeah, I feel like the, the common theme, though, is just you know tools that can introspect and can read the things that we're trying to work on, right? So in Firebug's case, yeah. it was being able to introspect the DOM and, and CSS and, and edit it in a live fashion. And GraphQL, you have Explorer and React, you know, have React Dev tools and whatnot. And it's just, and code mods. And, and it's just so much of what uh, programming has been very manual. And I, I'm really hopeful that uh, the more we make it introspectable, the faster we can build better tools that will help us build better experiences. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a good place to actually wrap up. Agreed. So, Sean, if people want to find you online, where do they go? I'm S. Grove on Twitter. And that's probably enough. Okay. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. Cool. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Thomas, do you have some picks for us? Yeah. So my, my number one 
uh, tip is um, Framer.com. This is, um, it's been a Mac app for the longest time, but I switched to Windows for whatever reason a couple years ago. And so I have not gotten a chance to play with it much. It's one of these things that it's not for us, but we need to be aware of it because it's coming at us. And it's the sort of thing where getting to know it now is, is kind of a future-proofing thing in the same way that getting to know Vue is, <laughs> is future-proofing for your mm-hmm. career, just in case. <laughs> right. Cool. I've got a couple of picks I'm going to put out there. Um, I've been picking Christmas movies. And so I'm just going to pick a bunch of them that I haven't picked on this show before. A lot of the older movies, I just, I, I really love them. And some of the ones that were made for kids, like the stop motion clay animation ones, like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer or Santa Claus is Coming to Town or The Little Drummer Boy, those just kind of have a special place in my heart. So really, really enjoyed those. So I'm going to pick those. And then um, my absolute favorite Christmas movie is A Christmas Story. And I just sit there and I quote it <laughs> while it plays. Uh, and I really, really enjoy it. So, uh, yeah, I usually wind up watching that on Christmas Eve as Santa puts the Christmas presents out. So, anyway, those are my picks this week. Sean, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, I think the the stop motion ones were is interesting because you know I, I also grew up with those and I had completely forgotten about them. And whenever you mentioned them, it was like getting hit in the head, and it was it was a powerful memory of, yeah. of yes, those are those are near and dear to my heart. I'll be boring though and do some uh, technical stuff. One is the the Moon Highway folks um, are really like I think some of the best GraphQL teachers, and they have some really great content on like they're one of the people who have learned GraphQL and still retain the ability to explain it enthusiastically and understandably, uh, which I I admire a lot. So I would definitely recommend checking out the Moon Highway folks, and they're also just nice people. And then there's DraftBit, which is kind of an experiment along... It's like Framer for React, but it's coming at it from a developer point of view. So it's meant for generating uh, React Native applications as a UI builder. And I think uh, that's one that I've been keeping my eye on. And then the last one will be kind of off the wall. There is a video of a memory exploit in Super Mario Land 2 for the Game Boy. And okay, I'm, I'm, I'm in love with this. It goes <laughs> over how the camera system worked and how it, it mapped to the actual memory because the Game Boy's memory was just tiny and you can actually introspect it really easily. And they found bugs in it which would allow you to change the state of the character. So whenever you go through uh, tubes, you would go through the ground or pipes, depending on which team you're on. You go through the pipe, um, you go through the ground. And it would set your flag to say the ground shouldn't stop you, right? Because you need to go through to go through to the next mm-hmm. uh, screen. And if you start, if you died at that moment, or if you exited the level by you know, hitting start and then select, they forgot to reset that flag. So then when you went back into that level, you would fall through that level and you would fall. And the camera was just programmed to just keep going down through memory. And then you would fall all the way through and you'd start visualizing other parts of the memory as it existed in the, the game at that point. Oh, that's cool. And it would be rendered as, you know, um, enemies or blocks or whatnot. And you could, if you hit a block, it would change the state from one hexadecimal value to another, uh, and it would render differently. But you were starting to actually write the game code by moving through, you know, with your character. And this person uses it to actually beat the entire game in two minutes and 40 seconds, where he falls through the level he navigates to a certain memory address visually and then breaks some blocks, which triggers the final scene. And it, it was just this amazing... That's awesome. Like, yeah, it's, it's, it's just so... It's like uh, the, the most amazing and visual code editor ever. ever right? <laughs> uh, yes. I, I think that, that one made me, made me happy in a, in a funny way. I love nerds, right? <laughs> oh, gosh. That's awesome. Yeah. I love that people have spent so much time and effort to figuring this stuff out and then and then go through the effort to show us and to bring us into their insane world. <laughs> I know, right? Oh. oh, along those lines, yeah. I guess another one I have to mention is Tom Seven. Just watch anything from Tom Seven on YouTube. This guy is amazing. All of his videos are like, you think that they're going to be jokes? So he's this researcher who, like a computer science researcher, who uh, submits papers for this uh, conference called SIGBOVIC, which is 
it's supposed to be fake. It's like a April Fool's Day, but he does <laughs> real things. And he, like for example, he um, came up with uh, you know several hundred different ways of playing chess that are all bad, and then competed against each other and and did like this mathematical oh, wow. analysis of it. He built a um, trinary computer in a terrible, terrible <laughs> way. Trinary <laughs> computer. He, he physically built it, and he, like he, oh, he did reverse emulating a Super Nintendo on a Nintendo, and then he built presentation what? software for the Super Nintendo. What he does is he jams a Raspberry Pi into a NES cartridge and solders it all together so he can plug it in. Then he runs a Super Nintendo emulator, but he has to write software that actually will downsample it into the, the tiles. And, and like, wow. and it's just, you're like, I love right, this I, man. Know, every now and then you come up with a crazy idea and you're like, oh, that would be that would be like interesting, but that would be so much work. No one would do that. And he just does it again and again and again. So it's That's along those, awesome. those lines of like nerds that just do inspiring things that share, you know, and then share it with us. I love it. <laughs> wow. Awesome. This may be the rest of my week. Just. Yep. All right. Well, that this, this has been fun, Sean. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thank you for having me on. It was nice. Yeah. Thanks for coming. All right, folks, we're going to go ahead and wrap this one up and uh, we will have another episode next week. In the meantime, Max out. See ya. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.